Welcome to Coaching Leaders, the podcast that is dedicated to helping managers become better coaches. Today's episode is powered by One Minute Feedback. If you face challenges with receiving feedback that is helpful and encouraging, then you will want to try One Minute Feedback. One Minute Feedback's cloud-based feedback survey helps you get supportive feedback from your colleagues and external partners. The feedback you receive using One Minute Feedback is unique in that it helps you understand what you should keep doing and highlight areas you encourage to grow. Hi. My name is Raf and today I'm having a conversation with the author of the best-selling book. Radical Candor already helped thousands of managers across the world become a better manager, become a kick-ass boss without losing humanity. In my humble opinion, Radical Candor is an absolute must-read for every manager out there. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Kim Scott. Hey Kim. Thank you very much for joining me in today. I'm super excited about this conversation today. Well, it's an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Before we are going to talk all about feedback today, I would love to hear a little bit more about your new book that you are working on as we speak. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Absolutely. I love talking about Radical Candor, the old book, but also love talking about the new book. So the new book is called Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. And it's about eliminating workplace injustice. It's about creating the kind of work environments that we all love to be in. It's about eliminating bias, eliminating prejudice, eliminating bullying, and then eliminating the even more horrible kinds of behaviors that result from bias, prejudice, and bullying. Eliminating discrimination, eliminating harassment, and uh, and even abuse and physical violence in the workplace. So a small topic for the next book, but, uh, but an important one. I think this is one of the most important things right now to focus on. I truly believe that every person that moves into management position has this vision for him and herself to be this great, supportive and fair leader. And somewhere, as we're moving throughout our career, we're slowly drifting away from that desire due to lack of training, and few other factors. And at some point, we're finding ourselves in a position when we are no longer the person that we wanted to be in the first place, the type of manager that we wanted to be in the first place. So I'm really happy. I'm glad to hear that more people are focusing on it right now and trying to solve it. Yeah, no, it's a real, it's a, it's a, it was a real revelation for me when I became a leader for the first time. I had had a boss previously who was horrible. He, he was so belittling. I literally shrunk half an inch. My doctor was astounded. She said, I've seen people develop insomnia because of bad bosses or rashes, but I've never seen one actually shrink. Uh, and so I was determined when I started my own company and started hiring people that I would create this wonderful culture. And if I were in charge, everything would be much better. And unfortunately, it was not. Uh, I made a lot of the same mistakes he did. So I, I, I made different mistakes. He, he kind of made mistakes that I would characterize as obno- mistakes of obnoxious aggression, where, where he challenged directly, but he failed to show he cared personally. Whereas I tended to make mistakes of what I call ruinous empathy, where I did show people I cared, but I was so concerned about not hurting people's feelings that I failed to challenge them directly. I failed to to tell people things they needed to know. And that's really, in the end, I think there, there was a moment at this software company that I started uh, where I was determined to create this wonderful environment where 
about 10 people sent me the same article at the same time. And it was, I think it was from the New York Times. And it was about how most employees would rather have a boss who's a total, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Absolutely. Go ahead. Most people would rather have a boss who's a total asshole, that, but really effective than one who's really nice, but, but ineffective. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk who's ineffective or they think I'm nice but ineffective? <laughs> and surely those are not my two choices. And that was really what radical candor is all about. It's about combining the best of caring personally while also challenging people directly at the same time. So that's, that's radical candor in a nutshell, care and challenge at the same time. Yes, and I believe we all want to see ourselves in that role. And when you mention about injustice in the workplace and those two examples, now I believe loads of managers can put themselves in the same position where I was a few years ago. So let's say it was my turn to share challenging feedback and I had to challenge my female peers, let's say. Now, I was troubled with the decision that I had to make. Am I going to be very direct? But if I am that I'm risking, I'm worried that I will come across as too direct, as unfair, or perhaps even sexist? Or should I be nice? Should I, should I be very kind towards that person? But if I do so, then I may come across as being patronizing. Now, none of those options, none of those perceptions is the one that I'm striving for, but I'm worried what to do. And so oftentimes to compromise, I would go, quote unquote, what's safe, and I would just shut up, and I wouldn't share any feedback, which is even worse. So Kim, how can we support managers and take that pressure away from them? We want managers to share feedback frequently, but we don't want them to be conflicted which style and approach they should take. What managers can do? Yes, I think one of the things that helped me the most was just telling stories, was thinking about moments in my career when I received some critical feedback that maybe stung a little bit in the moment, but stood me in good stead for the next year, next decade even, not just year, but for a long time. And also to think about those moments in my career when as a manager, I failed to tell someone something they'd be better off knowing I was just trying to be nice, and then I wound up having to fire them. Not so nice after all. And and having these stories front of mind has helped me. So I'll tell you my stories, and then I would encourage all your listeners to think of their stories. So here's my radical candor story. It happened shortly after I started working at Google, and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room, and there in one corner of the room was Sergey Brin standing, pedaling away on an elliptical trainer, wearing toe shoes. Not what I expected. <laughs> there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, typing away, doing his email. And he was so intent, it was like his brain had been plugged into the machine. And I wondered, how in the world am I supposed to get these people's attention? And like most people in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I explained how many new customers we had added over the, over the previous couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. Said, what did you say? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? This is incredible. How can we help you? So I'm feeling like the meeting was going okay. In fact, 
I now believe that I am a genius. And I, I walked out of the room and I walked past my boss and I was expecting kind of a high five or a pat on the back. And instead she said to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? I thought, oh, wow, I have screwed something up and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And she began by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich kind of the, the, yeah, the kiss me, kick me, kiss me sense the word, but seeming to really mean what she was saying and, and telling me some things I hadn't realized. But of course, all I wanted to do was to hear what I had done wrong. And eventually she said to me, said, I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And then I breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I had a tiger by the tail. I kind of made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, yeah, I know. It's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then she said to me, I know this great speech coach and I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand and I said, no, I'm busy. I don't have time for a speech coach. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? And then she stopped and she looked me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. <laughs> now she has my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say that I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and by the way, she wouldn't have had to use just those words with other people on her team who were maybe a better listener than I was. But if she hadn't used just those words with me, I would not have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my whole career. I had raised millions of dollars for two startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty, pretty good at it. And it really got me to wondering, why was it that no one had, had told me? It was almost like I had been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. I could get it out if I knew about it, but, but nobody had told me. And so it made me wonder, why did no one tell me? And what was it about my boss that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And when I really thought about it and tried to boil it down, I realized there were two things about, about her that made it go more smoothly. One was that she cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. So when I moved from, I had been living in New York, and then I moved to California to take the job at Google. And when I moved here, I was a little bit lonely because I didn't really know anybody. And my boss could tell I was lonely. And she introduced me to join a book group that I'm still part of to this day. And she, when, when a family member fell ill, she said, you go, get on an airplane, go home and be with your family. I am going to write your coverage plan and your team is going to cover you. That's what teams do for each other. We, we back each other up when we need it. And that was the sort of thing Cheryl did, not just for me, but for everyone who worked directly with her. It wasn't as though, it wasn't as though she could do those things for all 5,000 people in her organization. No matter how competent you are, your relationships don't scale. But she could do those sorts of things 
for the people who worked directly with her. And when she did that, there was kind of a ripple effect that created a culture of caring because it turns out that when your boss treats you that way, you're more likely to treat your employees that way. And it really has a big impact on the culture. So that was part of it was caring personally, but it wasn't the only part. The other, the other thing that was really important about that boss was that she never let her concern for people's short-term feelings, which was real, get in the way of telling someone something they really needed to hear about. And so that was the challenge directly part. Uh, and that, that in a nutshell is radical candor. It's like a simple story. We've all had stories like that. So I think if, if people can think about that moment in time when someone, maybe it was a, a boss, maybe it was a, a teacher, a professor, maybe it was a parent or a grandparent, but when someone told you something that stung a little bit at the time, but that really helped you, then all of a sudden as, as a manager, you can hook into that desire to be a good person. I don't need to let that go to be a good manager. In fact, it's essential to being a good manager. But you can hook into that desire to be kind uh, without, without pulling your punches and telling people things they really need to know. Wow, love it. What I believe is that showing that you care and caring for your people earns you the right to challenge them directly. And what I hear from it is that Shell is really good at taking care of the people around her, which then creates an opportunity and environment when she can challenge people directly and people don't mind being challenged by her. And so the way I look at it, if I if my intention is very clear, that I'm here to care about you, that caring part earns me the right to challenge you directly. I think that's a really important point, but it's not like the caring earns you the right to challenge. In fact, the, the challenging directly is a way that you express that you care. The two things are inextricably linked. I think one of the dangerous things about praise, I, I talked earlier about the feedback sandwich. And I think sometimes people try to boil this down to some kind of formula. And they're like, if you just tell somebody something good, then you've earned the right to tell them something bad. And that's not true because what will happen if you, if you take that mentality is that you'll say positive things that you don't really mean and you'll sound like insincere or patronizing or whatever. So the reason to show that you care is because you really do care. <laughs> uh, because life is more fun when you get to know the people who you're working with. Uh, at a at a personal level and and build relationships with them and that does that's not to say you have to like every single person who you work with I mean sometimes you're going to work with people who you don't like but you can always show at the very least common human decency does that make sense absolutely and what we can learn from this story as well is that coaching conversation is actually quite short it isn't an hour conversation. It isn't half an hour meeting. And when I'm having conversations with managers and I'm asking them if they believe they can be and should be coaches, a lot of them believe that being a coach at work, being coaching manager means you have to work like an executive coach. And because their calendars are already packed, they believe they don't have time to schedule more of those half an hour, 45 minutes long conversations with their people. But that's not true. That's not the case. If we look at our coaching conversation, the best feedback that we have received in our lives, it will be a short one, two, maybe three minutes long conversation, right? 
Yeah, no, I think one of the mistakes that people often make with radical cancer is they think it has to be like a root canal. Uh, like it's this long, drawn out, painful process. In fact, I, I got a, an email from a journalist who said, how long do these radical candor therapy sessions have to take? And the answer is two minutes. Like for me, in fact, the origin story of radical candor happened in the space of time it took a light to change in Manhattan. So I'll tell you that story in a moment. But I, wa- I want to leave you with this thought. Radical candor is it should be more like brushing and flossing. It should not be like a root canal. The best feedback I've ever gotten in my career has always happened in these two-minute impromptu conversations, three-minute impromptu conversations. So here's the, uh, here's the radical candor origin story. I, it, was, it was back when I had started that software company and I had just gotten a puppy, a golden retriever puppy, and I adored this dog. I loved her so much that I had never said a crossword to her. And as a result, she was totally untrained and out of control. And I'm walking her down the street and she jumps in front of a speeding cab. I pulled her out of the way just in the nick of time. And this, I'm standing on the street corner with my heart in my throat. And this man, a perfect stranger, looks at me and he says, I can see you really love that dog. That's all he has to do to move up on the care personally dimension. He doesn't have to know my birthday or my kids' names or take me out to lunch or anything like that. You just want to see a person as a human being in the moment. I can see you really love that dog. But, he says to me, you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach her to sit. And then he points at the ground with this kind of harsh gesture and he says, sit. The dog sat. I had no idea that she even knew what that meant. And I sort of looked up at him in amazement and he looked back at me and he said, it's not mean, it's clear. And then the light changed and he walked off, leaving me, leaving me with words to live by. Wow, what a story. Love it. And as you mentioned, it only took two minutes. But what he did, he brought you into the conversation emotionally right from the start rather than putting you on the back foot with the way he started the conversation. He brought you in and gave you a reason to listen and engage. And I wish we would have more of those conversations in the workplace in exact same way. Short, sweet, on point and clear. Bringing people in emotionally and having those quick real-time conversation rather than waiting until my calendar gets cleared out and I have this half an hour slot to have this conversation with you. It isn't that way. Short, sweet, and quick. And I wish we all do that more often at work. Yeah, no, it's two-minute impromptu conversations. I mean, you want to bring what you know about having relationships in other parts of your life into the workplace. If you If you are angry with a cousin or a parent or a sibling or a friend, you wouldn't schedule a one-on-one to talk to them about it. You'd say something in the moment. And so I think it's really important to remember to, to both solicit feedback and also to give it. I mean, I think another, another mistake, it's, it's probably one of the danger of those stories I just told you is that I can leave people with the impression that radical candor is all about the boss criticizing the employee. But that's absolutely incorrect. There's a very definite order of operations to radical candor. And the first thing you should do is solicit feedback. Don't dish it out till you prove you can take it. Yes, it really is building 
that trust and relationship between me and you, building that coaching relationship between me and you. So rather than starting from sharing the feedback, first I'll show you and prove you that I can take feedback on board and then I start asking more frequently for feedback as well. And what I have noticed that when people do ask for feedback, they just walk up to the person and say, hey, do you have some feedback for me? In fact, what you are doing if you're asking such a vague question is you are putting another person in a very uncomfortable position. Because what I'm really asking you for is not only just for feedback, but what I'm asking you to do in that particular time and place is to figure it out quickly what it is that I want to hear from you, what it is that you have to focus on with your feedback, which already creates uncomfortable situation. And so instead, we have to be very precise and clear what it is that we want to hear about rather than just being vague with a question, hey, do you have some feedback for me, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that, so if people do this one thing, it's going to help them a lot. And the one thing is to think about your question. How are you going to ask for feedback? Because as you say, if you tell someone, do you have any, if you ask someone, do you have any feedback for me? I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. Uh, so, so you're kind of wasting your breath. So what is the way that you are going to think about demonstrating to that person that you really want to hear an answer, that there's not a right answer to this question, that you want to learn something. You're asking a question because you want to learn something. My coach, uh, Fred Kaufman, when I was at Google, uh, suggested the following question. He said, ask people, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And ask it on a regular cadence. Ask it at the end of your one-on-one meetings. Don't, don't spring it on people, as you say, but let them know that this is something you want to hear about on a regular basis. And I loved that question, and I used to ask it all the time. But other people hate that question. Uh, I, was, I was coaching Krista Quarles when she was CEO of, of OpenTable. And she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. It wouldn't sound like me. I'd, I'd sound like Fred Kaufman. And she said, the way I like to ask for feedback is I, I look at someone in the eye and I say, tell me why I'm smoking crack. Okay, that's fine. Like there's another, that's another way to ask for feedback. The important thing is you need to ask it in a way that demonstrates to the other person that you really want to hear the answer. And that kind of puts them on the spot a little bit. I think the second thing to remember when you're soliciting feedback is that you have put this person in an uncomfortable situation. And there's no getting around that. It is uncomfortable to get, none of us want to give, nobody wants to give you feedback, especially not your employees. Maybe the only person, if you, when you have children, you'll find they really want to give you feedback. But other than that, nobody else wants to give you feedback. So, so the question is, how can you kind of embrace that discomfort? Because you can't really get away from it. And a simple technique that I uh, have learned over the years is just to shut your mouth and count to six inside your head. And not one, two, three, four, five, six, but like one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Almost nobody can endure six seconds of silence. They'll tell you something. They'll tell you, they'll say something. So now you've dragged this poor soul out on a conversational limb they never wanted to be on in the first place. So this is where, this is where, and, and it's never going to feel safe 
for someone to give their boss feedback. So this is why it's so crucial that you, you listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. Uh, and, and the reason why it's so important is you're often going to feel, even though you've just asked for feedback, when you get it, you might feel defensive. Odds are you're going to feel a little bit defensive. And so you've got to manage your own natural defensive response. The other thing is that it's so, communication is a tricky thing. And it's so easy to misinterpret or to jump to conclusions about what the person said to you. So, for example, my daughter, who's, who was at the time nine, offered me some feedback one morning at breakfast. She looked at me and she said, Mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And I thought I knew what she meant. I thought what she meant was I was working too hard. I was traveling too much. I wasn't spending enough time with her. This huge wave of parental guilt washed over me. But then I thought, well, I should ask her. I should make sure I understand what she's saying. And I said, well, who do you wish I were? And she looked right back at me and she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. (laughs) (laughs) So it was very different. It was a very different uh, sort of feedback than I thought. So make sure you really understand. Make sure you're really listening to understand is the third thing. Now comes the fourth thing. You must reward the candor. When someone gives their boss feedback, they are taking a risk. And if you don't reward that risk richly, they'll never take it again. People don't take risks unless there's a reward. And so you've got to reward the candor. That means if you agree with the feedback, you've got to fix the problem. And then you've got to ask the problem, the person, did I go far enough in fixing it? Did I overcorrect? Are we good now? So, you, so you've got to fix the problem and, and do it sort of theatrically. Make sure that, that they know what you did and that you're curious to know whether you did enough. So you want to make your listening tangible. Now, there are other times when you might disagree with the feedback. But if all you say is, thank you for the feedback, the person hears a big F you. So that's not ideal, right? That's, that's not what you're shooting for. So what you want to do in those cases when you disagree with the feedback is you want to take a moment to look for the 5 or 10% of whatever it was they said that you can agree with, just to demonstrate that you're not defensive and say, you know, you said this, I really agree with this. Thank you for letting me know. I'm going to fix it. As for the rest of it, though, I want to take some time and think about it and then get back to you. And then you must get back to them. Uh, And it's uncomfortable now because you're going to disagree. You're going to have a disagreement. and that's tricky for a relationship, a disagreement. However, disagreements, when they're had uh, respectfully, can actually strengthen a relationship. But ignoring something someone took a risk to tell you has never strengthened any relationship ever. So make sure that you reward the candor when you get it. So four things. Figure out how you're going to ask. Come up with your go-to question, number one. Number two, you, you want to embrace the discomfort count to six in your head. Number three, you want to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. That's managing your own defensive reaction. Number four, reward the candor. I really like him how instead of following your initial conclusion, you actually pose and ask more questions to your daughter to clarify what exactly it is that she meant. Because how often all of us throughout the day are 
forming conclusions and beliefs that often are false and wrong, but what's real is how they're impacting our emotional well-being and how we actually communicate with people around us. So conclusions are false, but the impact is real. And what doesn't help is the fact that we have this tendency of communicating without providing the context. When there is a lack of context behind our message, the other side will form a certain conclusions and beliefs and they will fill the gaps. And that's when it gets really difficult to have a meaningful conversation, whether it's employee and manager, mother, daughter, brother and sister. So communicating in that context is really important. And if you're not clear what the context is, ask some more questions just like you did with your daughter. And then you mentioned rewarding people when they actually are brave enough to share the feedback with you. Absolutely agree with you, Kim, on that one. It means so much. It actually shows how much you care and that you are paying attention. And here's, the, here's what's beautiful about it. When you are going back to the employee or to the person who shared the feedback with you and you let them know what difference did it make to your life, they feel like they've contributed. They are now actually part of the experience with you because they took they took the chance to provide you the feedback but you have actually listened and you have improved and now you came back to me let me know what difference did it make and now i'm more likely to share more feedback in the future with you because you need it as a manager let's face it employees are in the mindset that because you're the manager right now it means you've got it all figured out and you no longer need feedback from me and we all need feedback throughout our lives. Now, I would like to take this conversation into a positive feedback. In my opinion, Kim, positive feedback is one of the most underrated coaching tools that managers can use. Unfortunately, for some reason, we are not so consistent and quick with sharing positive feedback. Why do you think that is, Kim? So I think when you praise someone, so, so radical candor is about praise and criticism. And it's more about praise than criticism. You really do want to focus on the good stuff. And so let's start with why it's important and then, and then finish with why we don't do it more. I think it's important because part of your job as a leader is to show people what's possible, to build a vision of where you're going together and how you're going to get there. And praise is a much better way to, to do that than criticism. If you think about, if you imagine that what one of the things you're doing as a leader is you're skiing down a ski slope and there's a lot of trees in your way. What you want to do is you want to focus on the gap through the trees. You don't want to focus on the trees. If you focus too much on the trees, it actually makes it more likely that you'll hit them. It's called positive target identification. So that's what praise allows you to do. Really, really important. Why are we reluctant to give praise? I think part of the reason is when you offer criticism, people tend to think you're smarter. When you offer praise, uh, it's, hard, it's, it's actually hard to offer really meaningful praise. I think the other problem with praise is that very often, because people have gotten this, this bad advice to offer the feedback sandwich, people offer praise they don't really mean. And insincere praise is really bad. It does not strengthen your relationship, but it makes you, it makes you look bad. It hurts your relationship because people then don't trust what you tell them. So you want to make sure that you take as much time with praise as you do with criticism. 
that you are very specific about what's good, what the impact that person had, and also that you're sincere, that you're only saying things you really mean. I totally agree with you, Kim. There is one thing that we can notice over and over again, and even myself, I was, and I still am from time to time guilty of, is that we tend to be detailed negative, but vaguely positive. Meaning, if it's my turn to challenge you, I will be very detailed and specific. If, in my opinion, you screwed up, I will let you know in depth what you've done wrong, when, how, what, what impact did it have on me, on others, on the business, and everything else. Mm-hmm. But if I'm going to share a positive feedback with you finally, then most likely I'm going to be vaguely positive. Meaning I will limit my feedback to something like, hey, well done, I really like what you've done, good job, great work, etc. That's very vague. It doesn't mean much to me. Because if you're continuously providing me positive feedback that way, then I'll start to believe that you are doing it only because somebody told you that you have to say something positive, right? So what you're doing is, hey, okay, and thumbs up. That's not how you build a relationship with people around you. So as you said, Kim, we have to be very specific when we're providing positive feedback. Just as specific we are when we are challenging people with our feedback. And so I'd like to share with you, Kim, in exchange, a story as well that would represent how powerful positive feedback can be when it's delivered in depth and with details. So two years ago, I have decided to share completely unsolicited feedback to the manager who I wasn't working with. So Regan, she's amazing. She's an absolute diamond. The way she's engaging with her team, how she was delegating the task, how she could switch between being really busy and then turn around to the guest with the biggest smile on her face and say, hey, how are you doing? She is absolute star. So, me being me, I've decided that I have to let her know how amazing she is. I was waiting for the right opportunity to do so and for some reason, I've decided that when she's, she went for a cigarette, that will be the time. And so, as I was walking towards Reagan, I was trying to think How can I approach it? Because it's a little bit bizarre that strange person shares feedback with a manager. And I have anticipated several different responses, but one. Towards the end of this conversation, I have seen how Regan was holding back her tears. She said, Raf, for eight months, nobody really told me what I'm really good at. She was new into a management role and for her first eight months, all she could hear is the mistakes that she made and every single thing that was wrong, she would be made aware of. But when she did something great and she was doing things exceptionally well every single day, she wouldn't hear it. Now, imagine the impact of that. Imagine yourself being a freshly promoted manager who wants to do well and for eight months, you are being kept in the dark because you don't know what it is that you're doing well. You want to do well, but nobody tells you how good you are. And so you start doubting yourself. So what I realized on the back of this conversation with Reagan is that withholding feedback from people, it's not only to manipulate with their development and growth, it's also to manipulate with their emotional well-being and happiness. All I have done is took five minutes of my time and I was very specific and detailed about what she is doing great. 
That's all. All I have done is I verbalized my thoughts. That's all you have to do. If somebody is doing great work, you have a certain thoughts in your head. Don't abbreviate them to well done. Verbalize them with depth and details. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really, it's very difficult to, to do it. It's easy to say, really hard to, I, I worked with, I love that story, by the way, because it, you're right. It does mean a lot to know what you're doing right. And very often people don't know that their work is appreciated or, or even that they're doing, they're doing the right things at work or that they're, that they're doing such a great job. What, one of the people who I worked with at, at Apple said she would ask class when we taught management, she would ask people, if you're preparing to offer some criticism, how long do you spend prepa- preparing? How long do you spend making sure you have the facts straight? And people had various answers. And then she said, and if you're preparing to praise, how long do you spend making sure you get the facts straight? And, and people were like, no time, you know, and, and, and that, the sort of what we told people is if it's something you would say to a dog, like good job, it's not really good praise. It needs to be really specific and it needs to, very often people are unaware. They know that they're doing something and it feels right, but they're unaware of how important the impact is. So for example, when I was at Google, one of the teams I led was, was doing email support, not, not a call center even, but email support. And one of the people on the team had the idea to get programmable keypads. And this was a good idea, but like it didn't feel to anybody like a revolutionary idea. But the fact of the matter is what she was not aware of was that we got them and the whole team became 30% more efficient overnight because of this one idea she had. It was incredible. And, and so you know, I really, but I really spent some time thinking about why does that matter? Why does that matter to this team? Uh, it was Google and there was money blowing out of the air conditioning vents there. So that, so it wasn't like profitability was the big motivator here. But so what I said to the team is this, so-and-so had this idea for programmable keypads. It improved productivity 30%. And why does that matter? That means that all of you now have 30% more time to work on projects that are more interesting than, than email support. And all of a sudden, she was a hero. And so I think that's really important when you offer public praise, to offer it in a way that really demonstrates the impact and the impact that the person themselves may not be aware of. Yes, absolutely. And it also reduces the tension and takes the pressure away from employees because where the stress is coming from. Having eight-hour shift with all those small things that are nagging and annoying, it all compounds and accumulates. And then at the end of the day, I'm having a bad day because it all adds up. That keyboard not only improved productivity, but it also made my life easier, which means I can walk comfortably and not worrying about another thing, which means now you are enjoying your work more and that has impact on everything else around. Yeah, it's incredible what ideas like that can do. When, when people take the time to say, this is annoying, what's the solution? Rather than just living with what's annoying. Hey, Kim, there's a question that I have to ask. Now, as I was reading your book and going through that journey with you, from one tech giant to another tech giant, then to Moscow, poaching some employees and bringing them to the United States sites. I mean, come on. 
Has anyone told you already that your CV looks like a CV of a secret agent? <laughs> yes, my mother has told me that, actually. So when I was in college, I was the president of Princeton Alliance to reverse the arms race. And so I was sort of super duper liberal uh, at a time when the CIA was not super duper liberal. This was, this was uh, 19, 1990. And I was trying to figure out what to do after college. And I was looking around for jobs and I studied Russian. So I wanted to go to Russia, but it wasn't clear what a 22 year old could do in Russia in 1990. It was the Soviet Union, actually, not Russia. And I applied for a job at the U.S. Embassy as a nanny and I could not get security clearance. <laughs> so no, unfortunately, there's no super secret uh, story behind the story. I just had to ask that question, Kim. Now, that leads me to another question. In today's world, lots of teams are multicultural, which is wonderful. We're having this connection of marvelous people from all over the world. I love it. But at the same time, it brings another challenge. Being direct for one culture can be seen as a sign of respect. In another culture, it can be perceived at least as a sign of not being polite. In your book, you are using the example of people from Israel and Japan. So my question, Kim, is what managers can do to navigate through that challenge when they're leading multicultural teams? Where do we start? Yeah, it's very tricky. I mean, radical candor gets measured not in the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And so there's no objective measure of what's radically candid. Uh, the, the question is, how does the other person take it? And that's really important, whether you're, maybe people are all the same culturally, but they're still, their personalities are very different. So, so if you're, if you're going to be radically candid with me, it's going to sound very different than being radically candid with my sister. So if you're going to be radically candid with me, you're going to have to go pretty far out on the challenge directly dimension. So as, as I described in the um story, I'm not always the best listener. My sister, on the other hand, is a great listener and very sensitive. So you're going to have to attend more to the care personally dimension. So I think that's really important to remember. And then when, when you are in a multicultural situation, again, you need to remember that you need to adjust because radical candor doesn't get measured at your mouth. It gets measured at someone else's ear. So when I was, I was managing teams of people all over the world, including Japan and Israel, and radical candor, as, as you said, sounds very different in Israel than it does in Japan. In fact, with a team in Tokyo, I called it polite persistence because polite was a good way for them to think about showing how they cared personally and persistence was an easier way for them to think of challenge directly. But if I had gone to Tel Aviv and said, we're going to be, we're going to offer polite persistence they would have been frustrated because, because I'm not saying that Israelis are rude or anything like that, but it, it's a very direct culture. And very often to them, what would feel in Japan as polite would feel in Israel as patronizing. And so you've got to make sure that you're adjusting how you're talking for the culture in which you're operating and also for the individual to whom you're talking. Right. So maybe it's a good idea as a manager to be upfront with your people and let them know how you want your feedback to be delivered because not everyone is the same and me personally are very much like you. I can take the feedback head on. 
I'm an athlete and for 14 years I've been training and competing as a wrestler. So for 14 years I have been part of the environment when feedback happens daily numbers of times. In fact, when I had to move into working environment, I was confused. I moved from one environment when feedback was there every single day and we would take it personally if our coach wouldn't share the feedback with us into environment when all of the sudden people do take it personally when the feedback is being shared with them. And so for me, go ahead, challenge me directly and I can take it because that's who I am, that's how I operate. But I also realized and I've learned that hard way that not everyone is like me. And so early on in my management career, I was I couldn't understand why people wouldn't take the feedback and there was very little empathy on my behalf when people would respond defensively to feedback. Now I have learned my lessons hard way and please learn from it. So for everyone out there, be clear with people how you'd like to receive your feedback, but also ask others how they want the feedback to be delivered for them. Yes, I, I think as the feedback receiver, if you can let people know how you like to receive feedback, that's great. I think as the feedback giver, it's also really important to learn how to gauge how it's landing. And so if someone gets upset, if, they're, if they seem sad, if they seem like maybe they might yell at you or they might burst into tears, that's your cue to show that you care personally, to move up on the care personally dimension of radical candor, to say something like, how can I help? Or to name the emotion that you're seeing, to say something along the lines of, it seems like I've upset you. So, and you want to be careful in how you formulate the emotion, because very often we misinterpret emotions from other people. For example, if I were working for you and you said something to me and I started to cry, it's probably not because I'm sad. It's probably because I'm furious and I haven't said, I haven't told you about something and like it's, it's exploding kind of. But so different people express their emotions very differently. So, so but naming what you think you're seeing gives the person an opportunity to say, no, I'm not sad. I'm fucking furious. Uh, you can beef that out. But anyway, that's, so you want to give people that opportunity. But, there, but the thing that happens more often with feedback is not that someone gets angry or sad about it. The thing that happens more often is that they don't hear you. They do to you sort of what I did to my boss. I'm like, ah, it's no big deal. It's just a verbal tick. I don't have time for your speech coach. And, and so then you have to move out on the challenge directly dimension. And that, for most people, is what's really uncomfortable about offering feedback, is you've, you've worked up your courage to tell this person this thing, and they didn't even hear you. And now you have to say it again more strongly. And it's really, it's really hard. And, and that, when you're in that situation where you've finally worked up your courage to say something to someone and they're not even hearing you, how can you move appropriately out on the care person, out on the challenge directly dimension? I think. A couple of things you can do. You can just share how you feel. I don't feel like you're hearing me. I don't feel like I'm being heard here. Or you can ask them to repeat back what they think they've heard you say. Uh, or you can take a page out of my boss's book and you, you can say, I can see I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. And then say it again a little bit more, a little bit more clearly. Just remember that it is your job to be clear. It is your job to get the other person to hear what you're saying. 
it's not your job to say it once and give up if they don't if they don't hear it the first time. Sorry to interrupt. Can I offer you some feedback? Yes, please challenge me directly, Kim. So one of the things you said a couple of times is the person takes it personally. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to encourage you to just eliminate that phrase from your vocabulary. Okay. Don't, don't take it personally. And here's my rationale. Most of us spend more of our time at work than we do in any other part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so when we screw something up at work, it's natural that we have an emotional response. And I think one of the things you can do to gauge feedback better is not to reject the emotional response, but to accept it and use that emotional response to guide how you're going to say things differently. So there's no, I think very often with feedback, people are looking for a magic formula that will control the other person's emotional response so that they don't, quote unquote, take it personally. There's no such thing. There's no, if I had emotional Novocaine, I would give it to you, I promise. But you can't control someone else's emotions. What you can do is bear witness to them and adjust your behavior accordingly. So that's, that's my spiel on don't take it personally. At the same time, though, when you do give feedback, it is so important not to personalize it. Not to say, like, if my boss had said to me, Kim, the problem with you in presentations is that you're stupid. That would have been a big blow because, uh, because it would be hard for me to change. But, but she said it very precisely. She said, in the presentation, so she sort of shared the, the context. When you said um, every third word, so she shared her, her observation, it makes you sound stupid. So that's the result. And now I know what to do to change the result. So you want to make sure that you offer feedback that doesn't attack somebody's personality attributes. But you want to, when you're giving feedback, you want to accept the per- that a person may have an emotional response. Wow. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate that. I wasn't aware at all that I'm using it quite frequently. And so now I'm thinking what I could replace it with. What would you suggest me to use instead of taking it personally phrase? Absolutely. I think usually, and tell me if I'm right about this, usually what we mean when we say don't take it personally is I can see I've upset you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. I'm trying to help you get better or whatever. So I think rather than telling someone, you know, there's that old meatloaf song, two out of three ain't bad, like don't be sad. It's useless to tell people how to feel. They feel how they feel. Mm -hmm. And It may hurt you how they feel. You may not like how they feel. You may wish that they were happy. But one thing you can do in that moment is just acknowledge the emotion in the room and to say, I can see I've upset you, or I think I've upset you, or it seems like I've upset you. Probably the best formulation is, it seems like I've upset you. I'm sorry. How can I help? That's Mm -hmm. what I would say instead of don't take it personally. Does that make sense to you or is that too wordy? No, no, it makes perfect sense, Kim. I will work hard and make it my current development point alongside with using more often phrase, you are right. It helps me listen to understand, slow down and engage in the conversation in a more meaningful way. 
I've realized that the other day when I had a conversation with my older son Nathan and we were using analogies to explain a certain concept and the analogy that I used he disagreed with and he told me that no you can't use it that way and at that particular time and moment I realized if I reply with something alongside you don't listen to me or you don't understand what I'm saying that would create a tension this is not something that I want to have within any conversation never mind with my son so I slowed down and I said yes you're right Nathan because truth to be told he was right at that particular time and place with his current experience knowledge and context and all that he was right in his mind and so what I had to do is to acknowledge his point of view so I said hey you're right if we're discussing that part that's when you're right however what I'm trying to convey is this and so it's really important how we reply back because based on that the conversation will take a certain direction so by me focusing on replying with you right number one I'm listening to understand number two I'm acknowledging your point of view and number three I am making this conversation safer I don't risk creating more unnecessary tension yeah no it's something that someone gave me that feedback and I was very grateful for it because I would often say that don't take it personally and I realized for me at least what, what I was trying to do when I said that was to say I'm sorry that what I've said is upsetting because that's not the goal the goal is not to upset the person oh wow I've lost a track right now because I wasn't expecting getting any feedback but I truly appreciate it and I'm actually really happy for getting one that's a chance to improve for me right there is one question that I'm asking every guest on my podcast I'm really curious Kim who is the best coach like leader coach like manager that you ever work with or for throughout your career yeah I have been really really lucky throughout my career and I've had a lot of of leaders who are just fantastic coaches Cheryl Sandberg was obviously one of them. She was the, the, the hero of the um story. I think another one who I worked with who, who, whose feedback I really appreciated is Reed Hunt. I spent a year at the Federal Communications Commission furthering your CIA theory. So I spent a year at the Federal Communications Commission and I was working for the chairman of the FCC, Reed Hunt. And he was one of those mentors who was, he, he did several things that were really helpful. One was that he would spot interesting opportunities and be very generous in making sure that he shared them with the people who worked for him. So at one point, he was invited to Bill Gates's house. And the invitation said, you may not bring any of your people. But Reed brought me anyway, and it exposed me to uh, to a whole world that I didn't even know existed. I learned so much on that trip. So being generous with opportunities uh, is one of the things he did. He also was brave. Uh, he was very brave. I was in, at the time, a not good relationship, I would say, a bad romance. And it was kind of a public bad romance. And at one point, something that this man I was dating did was reported in the newspaper. And I was upset about it. And rather than pretending like he didn't, and Reed and I were taking the train for some reason from from DC to New York at the time. And rather than pretending not to notice that I was upset, Reed sang a song. He's like, it reminds me of the Sheryl Crow song. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? 
And it was like the perfect question for me at that moment in my life. And it actually was one of the things that helped me get out of that bad romance. So I think one of the things that a great sort of boss as coach can do for you is just ask you that question. And again, it didn't take any extra time from Reed. We were sitting next to each other. We were boarding the train. We're waiting for the train to start. And he just saw my my humanity in the moment. And he commented and he asked me a really good question. And it really meant a lot. I recently watched the movie, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? And in that movie, Bernadette, who is an architect, had a mentor and who had been her boss. And she got together with him 20 years later. She couldn't understand what was wrong with her. (laughs) And he was able over lunch to listen and identify the problem in her life. And very often, the people who you work with see a side of you that nobody else sees. And it helps you not only do the best work of your life, but lead a happier life. It's like work-life integration. So much of what I learned from my bosses has helped me in my personal life as well. So work can really, I think very often we have this notion that our work is going to get in the way of our personal life. But in fact, our, our work can enrich our personal life if we let it. And if we let the people around us talk to us. I, I will say another, this is not about a boss who was a Uh, a great mentor, but an employee who was a great mentor to me and someone I'm still close with to this day. So when I was working at at Google, one of my direct reports was somebody named Russ Laraway. And I was still, I was doing well at work, but my my personal life was still kind of a mess. And one of our one-on-ones, Russ looked at me and he said, Kim, why aren't you in a relationship? You are a wonderful person and everyone loves you at work. Why, why is your personal life such a mess? And again, it was a risky question for a direct report to ask his boss, but I'm very grateful to him because it was the right question for me at the, at the right moment. So those are a few stories about how the people who you work with can see your full humanity and ask you some risky questions that can really help you not only do better at work, but live a happier life. Wow, I love how you mentioned, Kim, that our work life and personal life, it all blends together and it's one thing. In fact, the way I look at it, workplace is a perfect tool to develop the skills that are helping us becoming a better human being. Because there is no difference being a leader, parent, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, son, we are human beings. And what I have learned as an athlete, as a manager, as an employee, or as a parent, it all is the same. And those skills can be applied everywhere. So there is no difference at all. And so I have an advice for you guys. When you're working on your feedback skills, practice them at home first. It might feel uncomfortable doing it at work and I appreciate that we all been through it. But if you want to practice, let's say positive feedback, start at home because you are emotionally engaged and involved a lot more than you would be at work. So it's a little bit easier and the environment is safer to practice it. And by doing it at home, you are going to create a habit that you can then bring to work and do exactly the same thing at work as you've done it at home already. So develop those habits at home first, and then you can do it at work almost effortlessly. 
Yes. In fact, I wrote another book. It was a novel that never got published, although I think it was a very good book, if I do say so myself. It was called Virtual Love. I self-published it, so you can read it on Amazon. And that book is all about how the things I was learning at work helped me in my personal life. So I totally agree. And, you know, it's more literally true now than ever that our work and our lives are merged because we're all sort of sheltered in place and zooming and and yeah. literally often staring into each other's living rooms as as we work or people often have a two-year-old sitting on their lap during <laughs> during meetings now and uh and so it is it's really more true now in in this period in time than than ever i was going through your tweets today kim and i realized that you are actually teaching radical candor through comedy is that right Yes, absolutely. So, so it's one of the most fun projects I've ever worked on in my whole career. So uh, one of the pieces of feedback I got after publishing the book was, Kim, it's really easy for you to say, be radically candid, really hard for us to do it. And so how can you teach us? And I realized in my, I, I became friendly with Kelly Leonard, who's at Second City, which is an improv comedy theater in Chicago. And I realized that a lot of what radical candor is, is it's practice with communication. It's practice being a better human being. And so Kelly and I started talking about how we could use comedy to help teach people the ideas of radical candor. And we decided to make a sitcom. So think of it as The Office Meets Groundhog Day. And in this, uh, in this sitcom, and it's a bunch of sort of five to 10 minute five to 10 minute episodes. But in the sitcom, what we do is, uh, is we explain what radical candor is by often showing what it isn't. That's where the humor comes from. And then we talk about, there's an episode about, about how to solicit feedback and how that can go badly wrong and, uh, and how to get it back on track. And then there's an episode on giving praise and how that can go badly wrong and why it's hard. And, and again, that's where the humor, but also the learning comes from. And then there's an episode about how to give criticism and how to do it right, but also how to do it wrong and how not to do it. And finally, there's an episode about gauging radical candor, understanding how what you're saying is landing for someone else and, and adjusting what you're saying accordingly. So it's really fun. It's hilarious, if I do say so myself. And, uh, and I think it's, it's proved really helpful to people uh, in, in their ability to, uh, to understand what it means. I mean, I think reading a book is really helpful, but sometimes watching a video can, can get it into a different part of your brain. It certainly helps contextualize it a lot easier and understand what Radical Kandu is all about. And so we can engage with you on Twitter. We can find your content on LinkedIn. Where else we can get in touch with you and learn from you? Improvising Radical Candor uh, will we'll let you watch a, a, a part of that sitcom and, uh, and tell you more, more about that. So at Kimball Scott or at Candor on Twitter and RadicalCandor.com and ImprovisingRadicalCandor.com are great places to stay in touch. Thank you very much, Kim, for joining me in today. I really appreciate you taking the time away from your busy schedule and have this conversation with me today. So I really appreciate that. And I can't wait to get hands on your new book. By the way, do you know when it's going to be released? When can we expect your new book? 
March of 2021. Yeah, it's it's a long time from now. I'm I'm almost finished writing it, but there's a lot of other steps in the publishing process that have to happen. But I'm I'm editing it uh, furiously as we speak. Not as well, we speak, but as soon as we stop speaking, I'll get back to editing it. Okay, so I won't be stopping you anymore for writing the book. Once again, thank you very much, Kim, and have a great day on purpose. Thank you. Really loved the conversation. Lots of fun.